and this is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show... Love is like an onion, and you peel away layer after stinky layer until you're just weeping over the sink. Now, if this show had happened yesterday, Valentine's Day, I promise you I'd have gone along with the program, slinging the slop with the rest of my media brethren. But it's the day after. It's over, and my job, as I see it, is to jolt you back to reality and to remind you of the deceptions, the disappointments, and, yes, the dangers of excessive romanticism. So think of this show as your anti-aphrodisiac, your physicking, your cold shower, or better yet, a baking sauna and a birch switch across the backside. You say you're not into that? You'll thank me later. Okay, part one of our program. You think you and your special someone have some real chemistry going on? Well, science writer Hannah Holmes would agree, literally. In her latest book, it's called The Well-Dressed Ape, she breaks down the machinery of attraction, she lays bare the mechanisms of courtship and coupling, and she pretty much kills the magic. If you're suffering from any amorous illusions at this point, this should cure you. Some enchanted evening You may see a stranger You may see a stranger Across a crowded room so, so, Hannah, let's start with that first look between uh, lovers to be. You know that that moment when our eyes meet. Um, let's say at a party or or even in the produce department of the local grocery store. We lock on and we know that um, this is the one, or at least this is a candidate. Um, what's happening in that moment? What are we picking up visually? We size each other up instantaneously on a whole bunch of different levels. One of them is um, symmetry. So if your left eye, look at me straight here for a second. Oh, yeah, actually really pretty symmetrical. Um, that, so hot. That's a good thing, huh? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. One entire side of my face is like half a centimeter lower than the other side. The ear, the eye, the uh, chin bone. Um, and we suss this out in each other instantaneously when we look at each other. And it's a real indicator of the quality of how I developed in the uterus. And it indicates not only that I'm physically asymmetrical, but that my entire body and brain is a little bit screwed up. Oh, really? Yes. The only correlation that they've nailed down at this point is a tiny IQ effect. Uh, the more asymmetrical you are, the stupider you are. So I have a little little deficit in that regard. <laughs> oh, come on. It's not that strict, is it? It <laughs> can't be. <laughs> it's a tiny you effect. You look at all those lopsided geniuses, you know? I mean, come on. But back to the look of love, you know? Right. That, that, um, you know, that gaze that attracts you, you don't know why. It's uh, as often as not based on the symmetry of the face. Based on symmetry of the face. What else? Suppose you, you, you see a guy. We'll say it's a guy because you're, you're not a guy. Um, and you like guys, right? <laughs> <laughs> I have that reputation. <laughs> and he's dancing. Yes. What are you looking for there? This is so interesting. Um, the experiment they did was with, with um, females, and the females only watched videotape of males dancing, but not even the entire male. They watched video of the spots 
marking the knees, the hips, the feet, the shoulders, the arms, the head of males. So not even the whole body, just this sort of cartoon character. Um, and then they listed who they they felt was their favorite dancer, and they turned out to be the most symmetrical males. So the theory goes that dancing is actually part of a um, mating display, like you would see in a peacock, mm -hmm. who fans his tail, you know, sort of draws attention to himself to um, get you to assess his symmetry. Wow, I'm dancing. So, so women in this case are looking for a guy who's in good shape, physically. Yeah, symmetrical. That should be a little more aesthetic. Symmetrical, okay, not necessarily fit, but. Developed well, well yep. developed. Uh, the word I think I use is athletic. So, is is symmetry um, universally attractive for for both women and men? Yes, and for birds and beasts. Uh, if you you know a barn swallow has that beautiful forked tail. Mm -hmm. If scientists catch the poor guys and snip off half the tail, or even just like a half inch of the of one side of the tail, that guy's mating prospects are doomed. He's done. No girl would consider having eggs with him. Not even a girl who herself has her, her tail clipped? A lot of times what you see in the natural world is that a girl opts for to be a second wife to an excellent tailed guy <laughs> rather than to set up shop with a guy with a asymmetrical tail. It's really quite horrible. Oh, wow. They're really doomed. Mm. Unless they're outfitted with some fake... And they do this. They like they will like tape the piece of tail back on and see if that changes his life. And he's like, "Oh my God, thank you." So to uh, get a piece of tail, he needs a piece of tail. <laughs> <laughs> and now that I'm dancing, who cares if we ever stop? Um, now, what about smell? We've been talking about visual cues. What about yeah. Smell? Um, We've all heard about pheromones. We've heard about pheromones, which is entirely crap when it comes to the human. I mean, there's there's one possibly proven pheromone, contrary to what you see when you Google pheromones on the Internet, um, where there's something like 8 million hits um, for, for human pheromones and how you can use them to your advantage. A pheromone technically means a substance that I give off that causes another human to act uh, unconsciously. To respond to that to that chemical so like a true pheromone in a moth the female releases her mating chemical the male picks it up in his antennae and he does not think about it he just turns in that direction he flies until he finds her and he mates with her he is a slave to the he pheromone. is a slave to the pheromone mm. humans have not experienced this that we know of i'm sure the perfume industry is hard at work on it though well you can you know find an odor nice and humans do find the smell of fertility to be attractive they know this by um t-shirt tests um dirty t-shirts are widely used in this kind of research scientists will have people sleep in t-shirts and then they'll take them away and they'll have people of the opposite sex smell them and rank them based on which smells most attractive or pleasant and um using the t-shirt tests we now know that humans can smell all kinds of stuff about each other, um, including whether or not they are, the female is currently fertile. And that is more attractive. That is more attractive. Or at least the t-shirt is. The dirty t-shirt of a pre, just pre-ovulatory female is ranked as more pleasant smelling. <laughs> what about men? What makes them 
more pleasant or attractive smelling. One of the original um, studies in smell involved um, mating in small communities of humans. And uh, they looked at a little community in Canada that was very isolated. And they could tell by the way these people had hooked up, so to speak, that they were sniffing each other out based on their immunity profiles. What their immune system was most reactive to, what they were best prepared to fight off in terms of diseases. Somehow these people were sniffing this out entirely subconsciously in each other. What are they smelling that could possibly tell them this? Well, we're, we're stinky animals. Uh, we do try to cover it up, but um, humans are covered with little scent oozing holes. And you say, say women, for instance, favor the odor of males whose immune system complements their own. Right. What's, what's complement mean? Well, if I am, have a really powerful immune system when it comes to chicken pox and smallpox and measles, but my immune system is kind of weak against polio, um, and Lyme disease, then subconsciously, apparently, I can sniff out someone who has a really powerful response to polio and Lyme disease, and that will complement, sort of fill in the holes in my immune system. It won't so help you out, but it'll help exactly. your Exactly. Kid. Our kids will be immune to everything. That's the theory. Let's move on from that initial um, sort of magical moment when your eyes meet and you... Uh, have judged the person to be adequately symmetrical and uh, to have the right immune makeup uh, to that uh, point when you get physical. What happens to the brain when two people start to get intimate? Just becomes, the brain just becomes um, a, a quivering mass of idiocy. <laughs> um, completely chemically deranged. Well, I think I'm going Yes, I think I'm going out of my head over you. Humans really are selfish like every other animal. And to get them to stay in the same room for long enough to mate, plus bring up a kid, it takes a lot of um, chemical assistance. Such as? Dopamine, um, which is the same fabulous feeling that makes you want to have a giant margarita or another line of cocaine. Uh, dopamine is the chemical that um, tries to get you hooked. Mm. It floods your brain with happiness so that you'll keep doing whatever it is you're doing, even if it's being in another room with another human being. Where there's vice, there's usually dopamine. Exactly. So there's that pleasure chemical, dopamine. There's also um, serotonin. Yes. Low levels of serotonin are associated with obsession, depression, anxiety. And you say serotonin goes down when we fall in love. Right. That's to make you obsessive, to make you focus on that um, object of your desire. It's really sick. Love sick. Yeah, love sick. And it's not good. I mean, it, eventually it produces offspring that are well fed by two parents, but uh, it really is like mental illness. Mm. You know, um, today we take antidepressants when our serotonin gets too low. And uh, then we go and fall in love and make it go low, you know, intentionally. It's, it's bananas. This would explain obsessive love, stalkers, all kinds of... Yeah, well, that plus the dopamine. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a powerful combination. Wow. Does it get worse? What it about oxytocin? Worse. Oxytocin, although, you know, that's kind of a harmless 
It's kind of a sweet little chemical. We shouldn't uh, confuse it with OxyContin. I know. I often, I often am tempted to spit out the wrong word. Um, stay away from the OxyContin. The oxytocin is a chemical that probably evolved in the female to bond it to offspring. So when the female suddenly has this screeching bundle of unattractive redness to take care of, how do you get her to not, you know, put it in the woods and run away? Oxytocin um, floods the female system and causes great feelings of trust and love and yada, yada, yada. And so she hangs on to the thing, even when it screeches bloody murder. Uh, and then oxytocin presumably generalized to have other jobs in the species, so that now it uh, helps the female and the male to bond to people they touch. So you can release oxytocin in yourself just by touching another human. That's very convenient. Um, so now when a male and a female get together and, you know, touch in various ways, the oxytocin bubbles up and makes them feel more trusting, so the impulse to scratch and bite and kick and drive the other one out of your territory is diminished. So the oxytocin helps you to share that space by increasing trust. Um, and it makes us feel good um, every time we touch. So the human has to make this pair bond, we call it, last for at least long enough to get the kid sort of independent, which is four years old, perhaps. Um, and so we're evolved to keep generating this happy oxytocin chemical every time we touch. Mm -hmm. So better loving through chemistry. Now, now, what happens to that initial delirium, you know, that we associate with the early days of a romance um, that... Uh, at least has something to do with dopamine, serotonin, and maybe other chemicals. The cruelty is that those two are temporary. The oxytocin is renewable. So, you know, keep touching it. You know, if you want, if you want to stay in the room with that other animal, you've got, got to keep touching. Um, because the other two are going to flame out after about two years, as you've probably noticed. <laughs> Uh, that that state of delirious idiocy um, when you really are blinded to the defects of the other animal only lasts for 18 months, two years. And then suddenly the chemistry sort of peters out, the dopamine's gone, and the um, serotonin's back to normal, and you're looking across the room at another human being, just a normal, irritating human being. You speak from experience? Oh, great, <laughs> extensive research went into that, yeah. <laughs> On the other hand, your favorite smell in the world is? Yeah, my husband's T-shirt and his pillow. Which smells like? Um, him. Uh -huh. Well, that's nice. Yeah. So serotonin and dopamine be damned. We've only been married a year. Oh. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, so if we did a little chemical analysis of your brain right now. <laughs> the levels are falling. <laughs> Let's talk about the, um, oh, you know, the morning after sort of thing. Uh, after the chemicals have worn off, long-term relationship. 
Um, what about that story that we made for life? Like swans. Yeah, like swans who also cheat like like bandits. Um, no. Swans? <laughs> all those birds that we've held up. I mean, why birds of all things? You know, people just talk about these the animals that, of happiness? that mate for life. Isn't that sweet? Someone said the other day, you could really learn a lesson from them. I was like, yeah, the lesson is cheat like a burglar, you know? Mate with as many people as you can. But stay bonded to that one that feels obligated to take care of your kids. Mm-hmm. Um, th- those are the ones, that's how the birds do it. Me and Mrs. Jones We got a thing going on Birds, if you look in the nest of the average bird, there's always more than one daddy in the eggs. Um, And humans may not be all that different. The current estimates for for, uh, what they call it extra pair fertilizations or something among humans is between 10 and 30 percent oh boy (laughs) vast huge you even uh you told me about something that's particularly surprising um and that is a phenomenon known as heteropaternal superfecundity heteropaternal superfecundity and it means the human like the dog or the cat the female can conceive from two fathers in the same pregnancy. So we all know about um, identical twins where one father produces two offspring. But you can also have fraternal twins in which each offspring has a different father. This requires that the female mate with two males within those few days in which she's fertile. And I think most of us agree that is well within the realm of possibility. So you could have two twins with two different fathers. Yeah, crazy. Yep. You know how many people you're going to start asking about their origins with this <laughs> with this revelation. That's one of the what, that's one of the stumbling blocks of of heteropaternal fecundity and the cheating rate in general is that people only get the DNA test when they have reason to wonder. Um so we really don't know what the cheating rate is in terms of the offspring. But a recent examination of this was um, invo- involved a really broad spectrum of the population, and so it got much better quality data. These were immigrants who were applying to bring offspring into the U.S., and they get tested, they get DNA tested to establish a relationship. And it's been really traumatic um, for all involved because the cheating rate appeared to be Three percent, mm. um, and most of these people had no idea. Mm. And and again, the biological argument, the evolutionary argument for cheating is is maximize the diversity of your offspring. If you have them all with the same mate, they're all going to have more or less the same strengths and weaknesses genetically. But but do it on the sly because you want this person to stay a good parent to these offspring. Right, Right. just like the birds. You want to make sure you keep the um, partner hooked because it does take two to raise human offspring. They're so needy, it does take two. So hang on to the one you've got hooked and cheat like a maniac. So what has 
your knowledge of all this biology done to your feelings about love and marriage and all of that? Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, it, it does explain a fair amount of my past behavior. Um, <laughs> Gets you off the hook, huh? <laughs> well, I don't know, because humans, we hold ourselves to a higher standard than than you would expect from mere biology, mm. fortunately. Um, so it's a little harder to get off the hook. Uh, it does explain uh, a lot of human behavior to me. Uh, it makes the animal more lovable mm-hmm. to me, um, knowing that we don't behave badly out of a personal uh, quest to hurt people. It's usually just biology that we haven't controlled. Well, Hannah, thanks for rationalizing all our bad behavior. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Hannah Holmes. Her most recent book is The Well-Dressed Ape. Well, why don't you love me like you used to do? How come you treat me like a worn-out shoe? My hair's still curly and my eyes are still blue. Why don't you love me like you used to do? Ain't had no loving like a hugging and a kissing and a long, long while. You're listening to The 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP, Today, the post-Valentine's Day massacre. We're taking a skeptical, even dyspeptic look at love. And in part two of the show, we'll hear from someone who should have plenty to say on that subject. She's Laura Kipnis, well-known social critic and author of the devastating book-length essay, Against Love, published back in 2003. So are you to uh, Valentine's Day what uh, the Grinch was to Christmas? <laughs> Well, you have to remember that the subtitle of the book is A Polemic, which announces right from the start that I'm not entirely serious. I'm having some fun with the subject and going over the top. And, and in fact, I'm not against love. I'm in, in a certain way deeply romantic. So I don't want that reputation. No, I'm not the Grinch. But uh, in the book, you, at least for the sake of the polemic, you do a damn good job of imitating someone who, who is a complete cynic about love. Well, it was so much fun to do because it is such a sacrosanct subject, and um, you know, people don't usually do what I did, which was really to say the kinds of things that I think everyone privately thinks, or an awful lot of people privately think, but just don't say out loud because then they would be considered to be cynical. And, and I didn't feel like I had to play the role of being even-handed and represent both sides, because I've done so much of the time. Well, would you be willing to put on uh, the mask for me and, and be the um, anti-love uh, polemicist for the sake of this conversation? All right, just very briefly. <laughs> briefly? Okay, well, well, let's uh, start it and, and, and make the most of it. And speaking of brief, why don't you give me your brief against love, against romantic love, the kind of love you attack in the book? Well, I wouldn't even say that it's romantic love that I attack. I think the real target... And people often said to me that the title should have been Against Marriage, not Against Love, because it, the book is really very romantic, but about the kinds of love arrangements where people are fleeing conventional coupledom, like the married uh, conjugal unit, for something more um, self-invented. So, so the real target of the book is, is domestic coupledom. It was domestic coupledom, but it was, um, in a sense, I, I felt that romantic love was, was, was kind of the target in that the, the, the story that we're told about romantic love is that um, it lasts forever and that the, the correct way to cement it and to preserve it is marriage and monogamy. Well, I think that it's 
um, I think most people will recognize that romantic love doesn't last forever, and that's why it has to evolve into what they call mature love. And mature love is what takes a lot of work. And so I spent a lot of time making fun of this idea that um, uh, love requires work or good relationships require work. And, you know, you spend all your day at the office working and then you have to come home and work some more on your relationship. And that if your relationship isn't working, you're not working hard enough at it. So it was the language of the factory applied to the couple, basically. The couple comes to seem like the proletariat, (laughs) uh, you know, enslaved by the, uh, the capitalist machine. Well, I did say that um, people these days should read uh, Das Kapital as a marriage manual because um, it is about exploited labor and overwork and the conditions of the domestic factory. And love as a, as a subordination of you know our, our true selves to a social institution that um, that demands that that we uh, follow a set of rules um, that are really really confining and and kind of stultifying. Well, here's the problem, and everybody knows this, but it's a thing you don't say because there's not really a solution. And it's kind of the elephant in the room. And that's that I think for the most part, desire, sexual desire for another person, um, physical desire doesn't necessarily last 30 or 40 or 50 years, which is nowadays the length of, uh, you know, the marriages that people get themselves into. So what do you do about that? What do you do when you're in a domestic couple, let's say a married heterosexual couple, for arguments purposes, um, and you stop desiring the other person? And, you know, there's not anything that you you can do about it. So that's the thing. Um, The social prescription is that, monogamous marriage that lasts a lifetime is the only route that's really like a moral way to treat another person or the moral kind of life to live. But what if you just stop having desire? Do you give up sex? And you, you, um, you state the argument a lot of, in a lot of the book, uh, in the second person addressed to the reader as you, yeah. and that you is someone who is um, either uh, currently involved in an affair or soon will be. Um, <laughs> or has contemplated it or been a party of, in one way or another, a third person. Well, it's very yeah, very insidious yeah. the way you do that. I mean, you've got um, passages like this. Uh, when defenses are down or some minor domestic irritant unaccountably becomes an epic dispute, which happens even in the best of times, not only when you're preoccupied by thoughts of where you'd rather be and with whom, or when the yearning becomes physically painful or when you're spending an inordinate amount of time sobbing in the bathroom. This is the person who's, you know, obviously going to... (laughs) A little conflicted. Yeah, a little conflicted, probably going to have an extramarital affair. And uh, then you talk about the... um Again, as, as, the, uh, as, the, as the attraction maybe to uh, someone outside the marriage increases, imagine that every moronic love song is drilling a pathway directly into your deepest self. Imagine being hurtled up and down the entire gamut of emotions from one hour to the next, consuming tums like raisinets. But what if it's a million times more compelling than anything else in your life? That is the, the, um, the promise of an affair. Then you list a bunch of the uh, sort of comforts of settled uh, marriage and domesticity, and you say, but how can that compare with the feeling of being reinvented, of being desired, of feeling fascinating? Um, the, when you wrote this, I mean, you write with a novelist sort of specificity. I mean, there's a lot of real, real concrete details here. What did that do to you to write that way? 
it was, you know, the second person allows for a kind of pose of universality. So I guess, you know, I was trying to enlarge the argument and make it be something, um, you know, I didn't want to write in the first person in some confessional. I didn't want to write in the third person. So, you know, it was a, it, it gave me a certain kind of liberty. And, and I did feel in the course of writing the book that I hit on some sort of tone or mode that I thought of as, as writing from the id. You know, I was just kind of articulating all these things that, like I, I think I said before, kind of the undercurrent, the things that people think or feel that they don't really want to say. And I, and I did get a lot of mail from people on this, a lot of emails saying that, you know, it had hit them in a certain way. And I think it was something about the second person and the you. Well, I mean, you sound a bit like a, an accuser at times, but also like a, a tempter, um, you know, <laughs> luring people on. Did you uh, hear get any emails or, or letters that said you wrecked some homes? Oh, I got some pretty angry mail um, <laughs> as well. Uh, I think the very first letter I got, and it wasn't, you know, I also get a lot of mail from people who hadn't actually read the book, but they'd read something about it or a review. And I mean, that just seems a little unhinged to me. I mean, people are very exercised about this subject, obviously, but would write these rants to me without even having read the book. So, yeah, it is a subject people obviously take personally and have had personal experiences with. And um, you know, and it's true, I was being kind of irreverent about a subject that can be incredibly painful. Um, it's interesting. I mean, you were violating, I think, one of the last remaining taboos. I mean, we can attack all kinds of social institutions, um, including, I guess, marriage in a sense, but, but you uh, entitling it against love. Um, you know, it, it, it sounds as though you're attacking the one thing that, that when all else is gone... Uh, we rely on, you know, I mean, we may be poor, we may, you know, have failed in many other respects, but at least we we have someone to love, you know? Well, that's why I had to use the title, even though I think it doesn't entirely describe the book. When I thought of that phrase, it just made me burst out laughing because it was such a taboo. So I insisted on calling the book that, even though, you know, properly probably should have been against marriage or domestic coupledom or something. So people, I did, you know, hear that quite a lot, but I still love the title exactly for that reason. Mm. You say the, uh, the the real target of the book is, is marriage or its equivalent, you know, the, the long-term committed monogamous relationship. But let's talk about romance, even though that's not, you know, directly your target in the book. I'm I'm interested in your thoughts about it, especially at this time of year. All right, you want me to be against romance? Well, yeah, I do, I do, because Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, the same critique you apply to marriage, uh, when you look closely at all the social forces that uh, impinge on people, uh, you certainly will find that in the romance, too. I mean, the the, uh, industry that surrounds romantic love is gigantic. I can't imagine what percentage of our economy it accounts for, but uh, the stimulus package should aim at it, I suspect. Um. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's a good point. Um, I mean, it's hard to be against romance because it's so much fun, for one thing, <laughs> and um, narcissistically gratifying. So I oh, guess there you go, narcissistically gratifying. Nar- narcissistically. I guess I think that's the main thing that you would want to look at is the ways that it's illusory and that we use it, you know, obviously to kind of prop ourselves up and feel better about ourselves and feel desirable and that kind of thing. So, you know, it's there's nothing wrong with it except that it's illusory and doesn't last. 
<laughs> so if you take it on those terms, I think it can be fine. How do you experience um, romantic, uh, I'll call it propaganda. Again, I, I'm going to be the cynic here, uh, whether it be uh, movies, you know, love movies, love stories of any kind, uh, pop songs uh, with simplistic ideas about I'll love you forever and ever and ever, you know, even though we just met and I don't even know your name yet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what do yeah. you, when you run into stuff like that, how do you experience it? You know, the, if you look at the form of them, um, most of the times romance, romantic comedy or whatever ends with the marriage. You know, it ends with the couple uniting and getting together, and you don't see what happens after <laughs> that. You know, that would be usually cliche, you know, like you don't want to see how the sausage is made kind of thing. So, you know, I, I mean, isn't that the convention? It takes you right up to that point um, and conceals the, uh, you know, the grimness that comes after Oh, there you go again. Now, that's the Laura I wanted in this yeah, interview. Yeah, okay. I noticed that in the language about marriage, and I mean the popular language about marriage, the um, fantasies, and about romance, that phrases like forever and ever come in a lot. And, you know, there's some realism, I guess, in the marriage vow, till death do us part. But in a lot of um, song and story, even death doesn't part lovers, mm -hmm. you know. It's forever. It's eternal. Yeah, yeah. Well, I became interested in the question of how things end or don't, and particularly, and this will be grim and suit you, in the <laughs> question of, um, you know, like spouse murder, for example. Because one of the things that I started to think about it, I realized about spouse murder is that that's a problem. Um, you know, we hear all this stuff about people not being able to commit, especially men not being able to commit. I mean, that's a problem of overcommitment. You know, somebody is so committed to the other person that they can't detach sufficiently when things aren't going well and instead have to kill the person. You know, I mean, it's kind of gruesome and you don't really want to um, be funny about it. But at the same time, um, you know, this question of the ego's inability to let go um, even when things are bad, is kind of interesting. The ways that people attach and, and then the um, pathologies of attachment. So one of the reasons I think there's so much policing in relationships and in um, domestic couples, so many rules about what the person can and can't do and where they can go, is to protect against the possibility of future ego damage because what if the person you love stops loving you and starts loving someone else instead? So a whole strata of what goes on in couples has to do with protecting against the possibility of loss and the idea that somebody will stop loving you because that is seen as so, the, the love you get is so crucial to yours, essential to your ego and well-being that the thought of losing it is a kind of death in itself you know, a kind of death to the ego. So, and anything, you know, is worth doing to protect against that um, I injury. In fact, th though we might often say in a relationship, all I want is for you to be happy, we certainly <laughs> don't include the uh, the case of, of, of happiness attained by leaving us and going off with someone else. No, no, for sure not. <laughs> I, I noticed that in that Graham case you talked about before, um, spouse murder or the murder of, of a lover or someone you're attached to, it's it's not uncommon for it to be a murder-suicide. So um, the person, you know, trying to, I mean, in some perverse way, take that person with them into eternity. 
You know? Yeah, I made a joke about, you know, love should come packaged with one of those those kind of Surgeon General's warnings that you get on the cigarette package, you know, warning this could be injurious to your health, you know, given the rate of domestic violence and um, spouse uh, murder and that kind of thing. Mm. I mean, that to enter into love and couple them, you know, you don't really think about it, but it is to enter into this condition that, in which there's a, a rise in the potential of violence for, for those reasons. Well, there, there you go. I mean, uh-huh. if I wanted the dark view, I got it there. Thank you. <laughs> Laura, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Great. Okay, Guardians of Love, send all your outrage mail to Laura Kipnis. She teaches in the radio, TV, and film department at Northwestern University. Just kidding. Leave her alone. I love the way you always treat me tenderly. But darling, most of all, I love how you love me. I love how your heart beats. And this is the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. Today we're doing our level best to combat VD, which stands for Valentine's Day, don't you know? And next, in part three of our show, a word with storyteller, writer, and friend of the show, Jonathan Ames. His books include the novels The Extra Man and Wake Up, Sir, and the essay collections What's Not to Love and I Love You More Than You Know. His first graphic novel came out recently. It's called The Alcoholic, about a lovelorn problem drinker named Jonathan A. And he's hard at work on a new HBO comedy series about a character named Jonathan Ames. A lot of his writing seems to deal with themes appropriate to today's show, so I gave him a call. Well, well love is obviously a big, love and loss are, are big currents running through a lot or, or all of your work. You know, your one of your memoirs is called What's Not to Love. Um what what has love been for you, if I could ask such a, a big and vague question? Well, I guess I always feel like I don't love enough, or I feel, you know, that even the people I love, like you can't love them enough, and I, or time is racing by, you know, and so, I don't know, or I think love somehow makes me feel some essential loneliness, hmm. you know, that, like, never fully known by another person or can fully know another person. But, so, that's maybe some existential feeling about love. But love, I think, translates for me into um, paying attention and, you know, looking after and, you know, Giving. Um, so I guess that's how I love. Well, that sounds like a very, um, you know, healthy idea of love. Thank you. But, I don't know if it is or not. If it's unhealthy, maybe I'll start coughing. <laughs> well, well, I'm just thinking. Um, nonetheless, again, in the in the bits of of uh, autobiography that you've revealed in your writings, and also in in your characters' lives, love is always well. It doesn't seem to work out too well most of the time. Why do you think that is, given that your idea of what love should be or what, what it is seems seems viable to me? Well, that's because I just came up with that right now. <laughs> on the phone. When I was writing the books, I didn't know that. That's because you asked me the question. 
remember what I've written, kind of. Um, you just sort of move on, like clothes. You, let's say you're a real slob, and you just take clothes off, and you put new clothes on, and, and the clothes you take off, you just leave behind. That's kind of like what books are for me, or things I've said. I almost forget them as soon as I say them. So I don't, I think... But if I if I don't look back at the books, yeah, I think people are always they're seeking love, they're seeking connections. They make connections, though. In The Extra Man, my novel, the character really loves his roommate, and they have friendship, and that's love. And in my first novel, the character loves his childhood friend, and that story kind of continues in The Alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So I don't see that these are failed loves, you know, maybe they're realistic portraits. Mm-hmm. I haven't written a lot about romantic love, I guess, or the women in my life too much, because um, some of that stuff maybe too private, or, or I don't know, maybe someday I will. I always loved that Bukowski book, Women. Mm. Um, so that's maybe more cataloging of sex. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, so I don't know. That's such a big question. I can't give definitive answers. No, yeah, no. I, I don't know. Could maybe the Dalai Lama? <laughs> well, I w- the only reason it, I mean the reason it, it, I was prompted to ask it is simply because you do seem to have tussled with this this um, in, in your writing and certainly in the alcoholic. It's there. Uh, it's it, it's up front. You know, I mean, you you take love very seriously. Who doesn't, of course? But but not many people, not as many people, uh, externalize. You know, in, in in writing some of the essential questions the way you do. So yeah, I just thought it'd be interesting to ask you, and especially as Valentine's Day comes up, and, and we talked about how um, your character Jonathan A is a real romantic, and certainly the the image you give us of you is of a kind of guy who's struggling with romantic ideas of masculinity a lot. Mm-hmm. So are you a romantic? I'm more of a heartbroken romantic about everything, you know, about the world. So, you know, I do feel people are trying. I don't know. Um, I, I, no, I'm not really romantic, but I'm not cynical either. I, I do, I guess I, I feel like I'm still too disturbed within myself to but I, I have a pretty good relationship at the moment I don't know what's the question again I'm, <laughs> no free associate that's better um, <laughs> well I was just writing down something as you were speaking because I, I kind of liked what I was saying and I want to write it um, for one of my characters in the TV show that feeling of that love makes you aware of how you fall short Mm. And truly knowing someone mm-hmm. and being known mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of, you know seems to it's a, a little bit dark maybe um, well, what do you think of the cultural machinery uh that gives us a particular version of love over and over and over again, which is of complete union of uh ha- you know live, living happily ever after? Even of uh, love conquering death, you know. Yeah, well, it's annoying, I guess. <laughs> what do you do on Valentine's Day? You shut your ears? Uh, no, I mean, you know, I'll if I'm with someone, I'll take it. I don't 
all those, I mean, Mother's Day, I, you know, okay, well, let me acknowledge my mom, and I'm happy to, you know, um, all, all those days feel somewhat contrived and forced upon us, you know, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, or, but they can be good, though, because they make us stop and pay attention, like, the whole point behind any holiday, I guess, you know, but, um, so, I don't turn deaf ears, I just don't take, it's not, like, super important to me, you know, like, I don't feel the need to go crazy on New Year's Eve, though I will, you know, or I'll, (laughs) you know, or I'll launch the Super Bowl or the Oscars, you know, I follow along, but it's like, you know, something better came in the way I'd do that. And we'll be hearing more about Jonathan Ames's graphic novel, The Alcoholic, and his forthcoming HBO comedy series, Bored to Death, in the not-too-distant future. You're listening to the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP, the topic of our Day After Valentine's Day show. And now for our fourth and final segment, a true tale of love and loss. Not about two people, but about a person and the art he gave his heart to. Glenn Kurtz was a promising young classical guitarist on his way up when things got complicated. And at the age of 25, with a seemingly bright future in music, he packed it in. He put the guitar away for many years and tried not to think about it. And then, a decade later, he dug up his old recordings and notebooks started asking what went wrong, and eventually returned to music. That's the subject of his memoir, Practicing. It's a breakup story, really, and just about everything he says about music pretty much goes for romantic love in all its forms. When I look back on it now, um, I, I think of it in terms of, a, of the ways that ideals can damage you. I, I had conceived this ideal for myself. I mean, I had fallen in love with music, I guess, when I was really quite young, and I'd really devoted so much of my life and energy and, and expectation and ambition to becoming a musician and achieving what I had achieved. But I had this ideal in my, in my ear, in my mind, of what, what it should be like. And I think every musician, every artist has that but ideals can be very dangerous things. And, and one of the things that I learned was, I think, your ideals, in a way, can be more damaging than any actual failure. Nobody said to me, oh, you're no, you're no good, you should quit, give it up. But, but somehow I had learned to say that to myself, because every morning when I sat down to practice, I heard what I wanted, and I heard what I played, and the distance between them seemed so great that at some moment that distance seemed uncrossable, and there was, it seemed that there was no way I could achieve what I wanted. And therefore, every time I played, I, I, it felt wrong, it felt bad, it felt not good enough. Mm-hmm. 
There's a passage in your book where you describe the vision you had of your future life as a, as a classical guitarist. Right. I wondered if you'd read it for me. Sure. I dreamed of living the life I heard in music. It would be an artist's life, full of pleasure, discovery, and an edifying sort of suffering. I would tour the world's concert stages, performing the transformation of feeling into sound, and of sound into vibrating emotion. I imagined the love and the gratitude my audiences would show me for resolving their fears and desires into musical form. It might be lonely and difficult work, but it would be a vibrant, joyous, and inspired life. Now, in reading this memoir, it seemed to me that you really were on your way to living that life. By the time you gave up guitar, at 25 you were in Vienna, you were performing with your friend, right, yeah. but that seems like the very romantic thing you were aiming for all along. Yeah, it does. And in many ways, I, I think in the passage where I talk about that time in Vienna, I say, really, I was living the life that I had dreamed of living in a way. But I think, as with so many people, that when your dreams become real, they don't feel like dreams anymore, and so they don't feel satisfying. Really, what's satisfying about it is the dream quality of it. And the reality is always more real, more realistic, more mundane. Art gives us an image of a kind of perfection. Yeah. I mean, works of art. Even if those works of art are about pain and suffering or difficulty, they say it perfectly. And we think, a lot of us, when we look at those works, that somehow we could enter that perfection and stay there. Well, I think that we can enter that perfection. And the stay there? The stay in there part's, <laughs> I think, a little more problematic. Um, I think the, the perfection that art enables us to experience is, in a way, the perfection of form. It's not always... I mean, a word is a word is a word. And, and yet there are times, just as a, a note is a note, yet there are times when that note is perfect. It's not the note. It's not this A or this C sharp. Mm that makes it perfect. It's the moment that's framed this A or this C sharp. And you can play that A or C sharp a hundred times and it can just be a note. And then the hundred and first time, it's perfect. What's perfect about it is the moment, is the framing. And so when we experience that sense of perfection in works of art, I think that it's the frame, it's the form that we're really experiencing. So we said earlier on that you, at um, around the age of 37, took this bold step of looking back at your former self and listening to those recordings. It had been ten, more than 10 years right. since you, you'd put away the guitar. What happened to you in those 10, 12 years? Uh, you write that giving up music was, for you, a calamity. Yeah. It was... It was up to that point probably the most painful thing that had happened in my life. It was this great love that I'd had, and I devoted so much of myself to it and all of my ambition and dreams. In a way, I think that's common for, 
for so many people. We all have some childhood dream that we've had to give up, and maybe it's of becoming a certain kind of performer or professional or artist, or、um, perhaps it's of a certain kind of love that we'll experience, and we dream of it and we work on it and we obsess over it and we we cultivate it and build shrines to it within ourselves, and then at some point. We have to give it up, and that's a painful, painful thing. And as with any relationship, I think losing it—the the pain of losing it—makes you makes you shy about it. You feel you'll never love again. You feel that you'll never be able to experience the kind of joy in in this. Thing, whatever it is, for me again, it was music. And there's that, that stigma, quitter. And there's the stigma. You feel that you've failed. And why would you want to go back and do something at which you'd failed? But it happens, I think, in in relationships, and it happens with any childhood dream that's really taken possession of you. Some point later. It will resurface and demand your attention again. You'll need to understand why it turned out the way that it did. After twelve years away from the guitar, you took it up again, and now you've been playing pretty yeah, steadily. I play pretty regularly ever since. It's、mm. been a little over ten years since you started again. As with everyone who does something that isn't their profession, it, it rises and falls with your other commitments. And so there are times when I practice for hours, you know, very consistently every day. And there are times when it's hard to grab 15 minutes. But I do keep playing, and that was really the goal for me, of of coming back to the instrument was to allow music back into my life in a way that that just gave me pleasure, that wasn't fraught with all of the The doubts and the ambitions and the dreams and the disappointment that、um, that it had been when I was younger. Glenn Kurtz, his most recent book is "Practicing: A Musician's Return to Music." They say. That love's a sweet thing, and for lovers the sun will always shine. But in spite of what they say, I think of love this way. Love is bitter, love is hopeless, love is blind. I learned the hard and lonely way. Love can't last through the years. I spent a thousand empty yesterdays hiding behind a veil of tears. Now poets. May write about love, and wise men may sing his praise, but I'll always remember as I go through the empty days, 
Love is bitter, love is hopeless, love is blind. Thank you, Randy, but you know that I know that you know that you don't really believe all that about love. And neither does Laura Kipnis, author of Against Love, who turns out to be a confessed romantic. So, too, knight-errant Jonathan Ames. He may be heartbroken, but he's still a romantic. And science writer Hannah Holmes. Well, she may say it's all neurochemicals, but she still goes weak in the knees whenever she smells her new hubby's musky shirt. And Glenn Kurtz may have called the whole thing off, but it's on again. And as for me... Well, I wanted to give love a smackdown today, as I said at the beginning of the show, but let's be honest, I didn't even lay a glove on it. I guess I'll just have to say, I really don't know love at all. So what are you guys doing? Putting, making valentines. How come? Because it's, val- it's almost Valentine's Day. It is Valentine's No, tomorrow's Valentine's Day. But, but why make valentines? Because oh, it's so almost Valentine's Day. Day. But But why? So we could give them out to people? Because you love them? No, because we want to. But when you make a valentine, what does it say? It says... Happy Valentine's sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. So it's not because you love them, huh? Not. It's just that we want to do them and it's fun. That's it. Now please don't ask anymore. And that's it for this edition of the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Back next week. Special thanks today to Andrea Monroe, my friend and colleague who suggested the topic for this show, and an on-air osculation to my Valentine. You know who you are. Bye.